it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, selling your brewery, as I catch up with Ryan Davidson and Phil Kemp from Little Bang Brewing. You'll recall that Little Bang hit the news in June with the announcement that it had sold to the Duxton Pubs Group. In covering that story, I was impressed with the honesty with which Ryan and Phil talked about the sale and the way they went about valuing the business and preparing it for sale. Also, the way that they described the challenges in determining the value between the partners in the business. Given the valuations being put on breweries being marketed as an investment at the moment, it was an interesting insight into how to value something that has a significant emotional value for the owners, but when sold to outsiders who don't share that emotional value. In this conversation, we look into the background to Little Bang, how the business came about, how it grew, and also how it came to be sold. It's longer than our usual beer as a conversation, but I'm sure that, like me, you'll learn a lot from this very frank and very generous conversation. This is Phil Kemp and Ryan Davidson. Well, Ryan Davidson and Phil Kemp, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the sale as well, um, which, which is now, a, you know, by the time this airs, it will be a two or three months old, but uh, how are you both feeling post uh, being out of the business? Phil, you, uh, you, you've even moved. You were saying you've got a little bit of separation anxiety. Yeah, so all my uh, in-law family is in Perth, so it was an agreement many years ago with my wife that we would move to Perth, and she finally put a foot down last <laughs> year and made that happen. So being uprooted out of Adelaide, where I've lived for 42 years of my life, and 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 then also having the business taken away has definitely been a bit of a shock to the system. So, yeah, trying to find my feet over here and um, trying not to miss everyone back in Adelaide too yeah. much. And, Ryan, Phil was saying that you guys haven't spoken much of late with the distance between you. I was I'm thinking it's probably been a couple of weeks, I reckon, since we actually had a chat. We just spoke very briefly before this. Phil just called me and I was like, oh, you're in the room already. <laughs> And he said, oh, shit, I forgot that we've got this thing on. <laughs> We're eminently forgettable around good, here. Good timing. No, we've still got the instincts. We've still got the instincts, man. I think we both still have an innate sense for when the other one's f***ing something up. Um, built that over a decade. <laughs> Between us, we always claim to have yeah. almost one brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's before we talk about the sale and, and 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 what you're doing now, let's go back and talk a little bit about you know both of your backgrounds and you know how Little Bang came about because that's an interesting story as well. So, who wants to uh, tell their side of the uh, dating story first? <laughs> well, if you want, Ryan, you've you've got oh, this okay, down. I was going to say, if you want the quick version, ask Phil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm getting pretty good at truncating it these days. Um, well, I th- we first met in uh, the games industry at Ratbag Games in Adelaide, one of the premier game studios, great little essay success story. Um, and 
from there, we both moved on to uh, Chrome Studios, and um, yeah, which was I think the largest game studio in Australia at the time, um, uh, both within SA and um, then in the GFC when the uh, Australian games industry pretty much just disappeared because um, uh, we didn't really have the support there from the Australian government the way that it does now. Um, we both had to totally reskill and do something else with our lives. But um, by that point, we had certainly established uh, that we prefer careers where you don't have to be a grown-up, I think. Uh, games tends to attract a sort. Um, we get so many uh, CVs in games, actually, from people's mums, like 16-year-olds, like, I think he'd be great for you guys. He just plays video games all day. <laughs> Pretty much it. Um, so, But I, I need to stress that you weren't game players. I mean, clearly you were game players, but you were in game developers. design. Yeah. Yes, so Phil's technical artist, and I was uh, running the quality assurance team. Yep. Um, I think Phil was head of studio there for a minute, like literally a week before <laughs> you were the, yeah. one of the, As you were the most fired. senior guy left. It was your job to fire everyone else. Default, <laughs> Default producer. Yeah, pretty brutal. So, now, I noticed that uh, you know the Australian games industry is pretty small in the scheme of things. I noticed you didn't talk about the businesses you work for as being leading independent games developers or anything like that. Does independence have the same cachet in the games space? Um, as in the craft brewing industry? That's a really interesting so. question. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, not at the time. I, don't, I think being owned by Sony or Microsoft or some of that would be looked upon really positively. I think because uh, the, the, also the barrier to entry for things like AAA games, like your Grand Theft Autos, your God of War, or all those huge titles is just gigantic. Like those things are by necessity, many, many multiple millions of dollar projects. So indies, there's certainly an indie scene in games, but it's mainly mobile stuff, maybe um, more stuff using like, uh, uh, what's it called, Unity or Unreal Engine, I suppose, um, at, at an indie level, but they're usually doing creative weird stuff around the fringes rather than really making uh, waves in the mainstream. And the mainstream is very, very, very broad, um, broadly taken up by these mega companies. Yeah. So maybe in a way it's like beer was- I was gonna say it's like more and more. the 80s <laughs> or the 70s, I suppose. It is getting disrupted a bit, but I, people tend to, I mean, there's a certain level of quality, I think that just requires tons and tons and tons of money. I yeah. think. Although there's okay. the odd breakthrough thing. I recently played Untitled Goose Game, uh, which oh, was yeah. made in Victoria. Yeah. And it was okay. wicked. It's awesome. A, a great game. Like, if you're sick of cliches and you're sick of um, just trite, sort of overblown cutscenes trying to make you feel like a big soldier man or something, and you just want to play something genuinely interesting and weird, it's awesome. Like, you, you are literally a goose. And it is your job to be a dickhead to people who are just trying to get on with their day. <laughs> and you don't speak or anything. You just have a button where you can honk and you can cut <laughs> people's shit and throw it in the river. And it's really, really okay. good. Okay. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll look out for it. Maybe there's a burgeoning... Yeah. I mean, 
I just became a craft game enthusiast, I guess. With a that craft game, game. <laughs> there you go. And you know, there's something about that game that sounds a little bit like some of the lactose-infused beers it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'll park my judgment at the door. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. We're all on board. You mean it's We're about giving people that. the shits? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 2008. Uh, Phil sacked a lot of people. It was the last man out to turn off the lights. How did Little Bang uh, grow out of that? How did both of us? Yeah, we obviously had to find new directions. I took I took a year off to renovate the house and um, you know think about what my future was. And in that time, started well being the tight ass and and liking beer. Thought well, let's you know let's do this home brewing thing, which rapidly turned from a Cooper's kit, which I attempted once, to going all grain, which was still, it wasn't in infancy back in the day, but there just wasn't a huge amount of information out about it. Um, so started homebrewing and Ryan moved into a beer industry of selling beers at a bottle shop to people and also homebrewing at home. So, and, and via uh, the magic of Facebook, um, Zuckerberg joined us together with, uh, a, I think it was a photo of one of the beers I was really happy with that looked pretty, pretty mm. schmick. And um, we started brewing together. Yeah, you were holding up a crystal clear lager, if I do remember correctly. And I was just like, I, it just, I remember it was just a disconnect in my head. Like, you brewed, you brewed that? What? <laughs> like, all, like, I just assumed all homebrew was like a pale, greeny, brown just yeah like looking like river water but maybe tasting like you know biting into a complete bag of hops or something but yeah <laughs> the, the sheer brilliance and pristineness of it yeah so yeah. so you started brewing together just in in, in homebrew yeah. yeah yeah so we we ended up brewing out of my shed on my kit that i had and and which was a really good system that i had going in the sense that Everyone had to come to me. I could get my my um, beer in first, <laughs> which means that by the time we're absolutely shit faced, I'm done. And, uh, and and Ryan and our friend Ian, who was brewing after me, suffered the consequences of being drunk and brewing yes. at the same time. We got the we got burned and go home with a with a shoe full of uh, sugar water or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or just yeah. or just leave it <laughs> and a beer that you have no idea what. Yeah, you're yeah, and half the time it would be just like, oh, it's, it, whatever it is now, it's done. Just stick it in the fermenter. Just let it cool down naturally. I don't care. You know, just like being yeah, pissed yeah. enough just to give up on it and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. But it, <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to the. But here's the thing, and it cannot be overstated: is uh, even half assing it on Phil's kit was just by far and away better than I could possibly achieve on my own. Like Phil was a refrigeration mechanic by this point. He got a trade that out of, you know, renovating his house and, and, and getting into that stuff. So just the the pumps, the filtration, the chilling, the, everything. It was just ridiculous. I was still using a pot on the stove and then <laughs> getting, you know, pissed and throwing in a jar of jam or something. Yeah. No, it was like a really startling, startling homebrew kit. Uh, he, he, he'll undersell it, but it was nuts. No one was using anything like this. Yeah. 
so what was your drive then, Phil? Were you just somebody who, like, do you have that, and, and excuse the, the term, but that compulsive personality that when you get into something, you fully get into it? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it on the head. It's taken me a little while to realise that any hobby I take on, I do it 110%. Um, I, you know, and it's always been hobbies where there's a, a technical aspect to it where you can apply science or, um, uh, you know, engineering or mechanics and stuff like that. And really, brewing encapsulates that full gamut of, you know, you've got a creative side, which is something that, you know, takes, for me, is not really my my forte, uh, but it's got the technical side where you can apply science to improve things and, and me, uh, mechanical stuff. And, and, and I love that kind of stuff. And I went, yeah went full tilt in it and it was a lot of fun and um, continuing with the story what was really interesting was Ryan being the new wave craft nerd where there wasn't much and mainly just imports coming in um, and running the bottle shop that well got I think harassed them enough until they let him run the craft beer section of the bottle <laughs> shop and and the, and the amount of beers that he was bringing over that I had no idea what they were. And, you know, I knew what a pale ale was and a lager and and, and, and I, maybe an IPA. But the, the stuff that Ryan introduced me to was oh, phenomenal. And that's really that case of Canteon, the growth. Of that case of Canteon that just mysteriously showed up and then mysteriously disappeared from a, a warehouse. <laughs> In the boot of your car. This funny Belgian yeah. shit. Oh, I must be out of date. Look, it's years old. Oh, it's off the <laughs> My God. Yeah, yeah. So so what year was this, <laughs> yeah. roughly? 2008 was when the games industry shut down and you first got into... I think, it was, I think we picked on till about no, 2009, maybe even early yeah. 2010 yeah. before the studio I, got shut. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I reckon I was, I was working in the bottle shop in 2010, 2011. I reckon we were brewing. We would have been brewing together 2011. Um... And I got the gig as a sales rep for an importer, Palais Imports, bringing in Brooklyn and Unicino yep. Nest, um, North Coast, lovely stuff. Um, did they still have Unibrow at that stage? They did. They did. Yes, okay. Um, but just not very often because, yeah, Unibrow yeah. kind of um, maxed out their capacity and only did tiny little bits. But they were, yeah, very special. Um Yes, that, that would have been 2012 that I started okay. doing that, I reckon. Yeah, which was, I think it was 2013 was when we got really serious about actually taking, well, serious as we were then. Because we both loved our jobs. Like, you know, Phil was having a great time being a fridgy and working in every other pub in Adelaide and, and knew everyone in, in that regard as a technical guy who could help them fix their call room. And... Um, I was, yeah, dealing with every other pub in Adelaide as a sales guy on, you know, these funny expensive beers and convincing people that, you know, there's another world of, of beer out there and that people actually are interested and you'll attract a whole crowd of weird, chubby, hairy guys like me, yeah, that, that you can't have access to currently. And, um, and so we just had the bright idea at some point that we already had access to these people in these venues and and without any desire to make it into a fully fledged business um thought we'd show off and throw out something silly 
I think we, we planned pretty early on just to do three styles that no one in SA had done commercially before. We did a steam ale and a saison and an American barley wine and launched with that. And that was just always the intention was to throw a few kegs out there and hopefully be kind of fringe and weird. And I definitely remember early days we had, um, before we kind of leaned into just being silly nerds, uh, we had this idea that we'd be kind of mysterious and a little bit kind of <laughs> grunge and, you know, have our, have our hair hanging in our faces and be half in shadow and never really... Who are those mysterious, weird brewers? And how long did that phase last? It lasted about two photo shoots. <laughs> There's the blue door photo. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll send that through. I, I love that one. We look like a such a, a an indie grunge band. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're trying to look so legit. Yeah. So, so you yeah. didn't start thinking, seeing the potential in the craft beer industry that it was a, and seeing it as a potential growth business that you could build throw something into and grow was it it, it it the way you talk about it is that it was just a little bit of a lack on the side uh, i think yeah. we knew it was okay, going places a, um yeah we didn't expect it to go like it did i think we were like ryan was pretty in touch with what was going on in the states so that's always a good reflection i think back then we probably would have said australia is five to ten years behind which is now 18 months five to six yeah, months yeah, behind yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's rapidly caught up in, in Australia, but we, we went in there with a, a genuine spreadsheet to the, to the um, financial controllers in our lives <laughs> and uh, said, you know, look at, look at this, you know, we can make, we'll make profit on it. Definitely kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And um, got, got the go ahead from them. Uh, and it really just, um, it did, continue to steamroll rapidly after that point with no no real business thought behind that it was more just an organic yes, growth that that's occurred. right the aim was to justify the expenditure on our hobby and demonstrate to our wives that the hobby would pay for itself <laughs> and show an roi yeah. on how much we would spend on on brewing equipment and yeah which wasn't bloody much i think honestly i think the first setup was like 40 grand? No, I don't think it was even Yeah, that no, much. I think we were like... I vaguely remember 18... Maybe it was 18, 18 each, or it could have been. Each. Yeah. We'd have to have a look. It wasn't a lot yeah. of money, so... No, I think that that cool room was a good get. That was like it from a disused refrigerated train car, I think. All those panels. Stolen. Stolen. Found. Stolen. <laughs> Found. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it, it, it's funny because I just said, oh, it sounds like it was a little bit of, um, you know, not amateur, but it was a little bit of a hobby that just went big. And even when you're defending yourself against it being that, you're basically describing it as a hobby that paid for itself. Well, that was the idea was because you can yeah. only get, a, when you've got a mortgage, you can only get away with spending this much on homebrew for that long. Mm. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I think maybe, oh, Maybe it just sounds like a nice story that way. I think in, a, in our heart of hearts, dream of dreams, um, we thought maybe, you know, that it, it worked. But I don't know. I think it, uh, we're, we're realistic enough. There were already, by the time we were going, there's already already a good couple. Like Big Shed had been up and running for about a year in SA. Prancing Pony had as well. So there, there were a few that were well on their way. And I don't know. It seemed to us that, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, we we never had that big input of startup capital ever. So it was yeah. we we never had an enormous loan or anything like that. We just had our mortgages and our wives that we would could convince to redraw a bit at a time, and then the rest was all just incremental. And I think we fully expected it to either just remain this teensy little one-car garage operation that we'd throw stuff out every now and then, um, or just very, very slowly kick along. And the benefit yeah. of that was that, you know, now looking at it as over the years, you do develop by osmosis a little bit of business sense. I think the, the real benefit of that was that we never pushed too hard to really, uh, you know, what they call push marketing. We never really mm. had to go out there with any amazing deals or, or, or really beg for people's attention. We just sort of always had this little story that we could just put up on social media and invite people along to because there was never enough beer for us ever to be motivated to try and push it. It all just sold because as fast as we could make it, which ended up being just a great story for a good couple of years. Um, you know, it was what you call high quality engagement, I suppose. I mean, that's basically describing Brews News. Like we've never pushed the business. It's grown very slowly, very organically. We've gone to the places that people have been asking us to go. Well, once we did our core thing, which grew out of blogging. Mm. And uh, yeah, so there was never any push marketing or anything like that. We've just existed and people have found us and the right people have found us. And I think it's very helpful um, when you, you're, you are your own target demographic, you know, mm. it's very, it's, it's very easy to, to be legit when you're just pitching what you want. And so you, all you have to do is confer with your own conscience and, and you know, you've got it right. I take my hat off to people who market stuff for industries that they don't give a shit about that, that, <laughs> that would be very, very, very difficult. I think that would really feel like a grind, yeah. sort of uh, conjuring up false enthusiasm for something, you know. Yeah, they, these businesses that where they're like particularly breweries, where it's a business owner who has some money and wants thinks that building a brewery is profitable or, or whatever the thought process is behind it, but there's no, there's nothing genuine about it they're the ones that i see that tend to really struggle they don't have the engagement because there's no there's no love there's no story behind it there's it's just it's just someone's got some money and employs someone to do something you know so it's it's i think these genuine businesses are the ones that really well that's work. the idea with craft beer isn't it because well, it is it's a reaction to um it's a reaction to decades of large corporate brands you know i think through i think you know often said so in the past i i think craft beer is not unique it's just part of a global phenomenon i think maybe we go in a sort of a sine wave with this or you know globalization really came up through the 70s and 80s and 90s and we saw these huge global brands that everyone had to have everything was just levi's apple gucci bang bang giant global brands for every at least Western country. Um, and I think this is a natural reaction to that, especially with social media coming up and people feeling like every waking minute they're being marketed at. I think there's a kind of uh, integrity or legitimacy that you just can't manufacture. 
that people are searching for because they just don't know what's fake anymore. You know, so much of news is is advertorial, and you know they've they're used to dealing with banners at the top and the sides and the bottom of everything they're trying to read flashing in their faces. I think it's just that thing of meeting a person who actually makes the thing that you're buying the thing off and you can just talk to them about exactly how they do it and see them doing it. You can't, that can't be faked. So I think it is very difficult for a large company to pretend to be that. Still some of them manage it, but I guess in your case, do you know how I mean, many Yender, of course, great success story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's one that we're watching. But uh, then again, Great Northern, you know, like it's so. Um, Is that a craft it, brand? I, I, well, yeah, that's true. Um, but, you know, Fat Yak um, was always, you know, it, it, it took off. and Wasn't that, but that, that was Fat Yak was Matilda Bay's pale back in the day or was that after no it was it, it was post cb yeah oh, it really was by cb yeah okay yeah. well done so, yeah yeah um but yeah but do, do you know how many breweries there were when you decided to go you know what did you ever make the decision to go fully pro with a little bang or was it always a very incremental yeah what well, we did have to move location um uh, the shed was too small i think we had a, got a couple of orders that were just for like literally someone ordered everything we have and then asked us when we'd have more. And that was, <laughs> you can only have that a few times before you go, shit, okay, we've either got to double down or get out. Because I think both our, Phil's oldest girl, Evie, and, and um, my daughter, Scout, were both like one, I think, at the time too. So I think it yeah. was very... And how, yeah. how old are they now? Ten. Ten. Okay. Okay, so nine years. Yeah, So, I, but I think that was about the time when... You know, when you've got a one-year-old, it's difficult to justify spending so much time on a thing that you're like, well, I don't know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. So it was kind of like either go hard or, 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 or drop it because it was chewing up an awful lot of our time. Mm. But even by, I think it was still like three years before we were even drawing a wage, really. Well, we had our jobs, oh, when did yeah. we drop our jobs? Probably 2016. I think we were paying. We were paying ourselves. I think we always did pay ourselves at yeah, some point. A bit. So we were. We weren't. Yeah, not not huge incomes yeah. or anything like that. But you know the the scaling of the business from so it's just Ryan and myself. You know we're just we were it kind of thing. So we never included labour in anything or anything like that. So we went from a capacity of 1200 liters a month to what did we get to 12 hex a double kind of a bit over a double bit, bit doubled into the new place with a couple of extra fermenters so i think we could have done about four thousand liters five thousand liters a month or something like that and we said that should be it for 10 years we'll be right for 10 years and i think within six months of of having that capacity, we still were not meeting demand. So we were, that was in the new facility on Union Street in Stepney. And um, that was, you know, that was three years of bloody good fun. It was ridiculous. Um, yeah. well, <laughs> I mean, being idiots for three years was pretty good. Yeah, so, we yeah. still get good yeah. old geezers from the old days coming in to the, <laughs> to the big place and Henry Street now and saying, oh, I remember back around the corner. Man, that was good fun. And yeah, yeah. The, it was fun. But the first thought that occurs to me whenever some 
one says that is no one died no one died because there was a lot of really really amateur stuff with serious machinery and three-phase power and forklifts and booze and yeah. all manner of just loose units rolling up to help uh, which none of which we're celebrating in discussing it, it not all together never ever at the same time but also you know you're working seven days a week too like we we're uh, running a bar at at night and on the weekends as well making the beer and delivering the beer and selling the beer and doing all the branding and doing all the printing and just the, the works and doing all the accounts <laughs> you know, in it, such as it was ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, everything. Now, do you think you could get away with that approach now? We're still seeing, you know, like I talk about the Wild West and the early days of craft, and it sounds like Phil gives you credit for having kept an eye on what was going on globally and seeing what was coming to Australia. Now with 600-odd breweries, and we're tracking 120 opening, and some of them still are a couple of mates who decided to open a brewery over a couple of beers. Yeah. Do you still think that there is room for people to come along and have that approach? Ryan's nodding and Phil's shaking his head. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, yes, I think in if you set it up as in what we had, where you're pretty much selling everything on premises, if, if that's, you know, what we can look at, what we were doing... Fantastic. You can make a fantastic business. But not paying yourself much is the the flip side of that. No, I think what Phil's saying is retail the lot. Yeah. Do a tiny amount and retail all of it. As a producer retailer, the margins are excellent. But you just can't, you just need to make sure you're staying beneath that excise cap. So I I call that the. um, You'll have a great little business of maybe four or five people. But I, I call that yeah. um, buying yourself a news agency approach where, you know, you, you buy yourself and you, you work in the business. Um, it's never going to grow huge because it can't. Um, at any time, you don't want to be there. You're paying somebody to be there. So you need to really finely calibrate those levers. So you're paying yourself, but then also you can pay others to do it when you don't want to be there. Yes. I think that's what that excise, that new excise bandwidth is, is going to give us now. All you've got to do is look at the wine industry. It, you've got tiny, tiny, tiny players and gigantic players. And all the medium-sized ones um, got hit really hard or uh, disappeared or got chewed up. Yeah, I think it's just... It, there's two hugely different businesses. I think beer wholesale is going to get more and more and more competitive and margins are going to be squeezed finer and finer. And there's going to be yeah, more and more uh, brands fighting over the same rotating taps and... and and shelves, um, and then there's going to be teeny little businesses running with great margin, but yes, that are absolutely volume capped by the by the volumetric tax. I do think, though, one thing you can't get away with now is the quality is the expectation on quality now, and the average punter is so geared up for quality um, in a way that, like, we got away with some pretty dicey stuff early on, and earlier than yeah. that. I remember drinking some stuff from Australian brewers that I was just like, well, maybe I'm not sophisticated enough to understand this. <laughs> this. Is this a fault or a feature? Yeah. Cardboard vinaigrette. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still some of that kicking around as well. Yeah, I think so, yeah, there yeah. was, and it took years for, um, for this, the, the Australian craft beer scene, I think, to shed that um, 
perfectly legitimate fear was that the quality might just not be there. Because like, I think it was be one out of four beers would be a bit off um, mm. early on. But now these days, um, yeah, the average craft beer punter is very acquainted with super fresh, super high quality beer and they don't stand for anything less. Yeah. You scaled to the point that this little thing that you loved and had come in together almost it, it was problematic that when one of you wanted to leave had you ever had through all of this time had you ever considered a time that well what do we do with this thing up, up until the point that it became yeah. real did did you build that into your planning and yeah. process it was exit strategy was always something we spoke about and you know the good thing is ryan and i came into this 50-50, all the way through, 50-50, everything was 50-50. So it's really easy as a relationship to, you know, no one's no one's got more in the bag than anyone else or anything like that. So that was, a, that was, a, that was good. If this sale hadn't gone through, we, we had expansion ideas to, to work with our current circumstances. So there was, there was, there was a way forward after this. That, that, that was after you left, Phil, you mean, or if you'd stayed in the business? Yeah, so if the sale hadn't happened, I would have stayed in the okay. business. Yeah, and who knows? I might still end up back in the business some in yeah. some respects. Yeah, we're well, so, still sort of tangentially um, involved as a, as a contractor. Yeah. And um, yeah, still deferring yeah. to your uh, immense wisdom <laughs> on things. Um, but yeah, I mean, the nice thing is we're buddied up with a group now who is very, very keen on... on growth in general in the pub space yeah. and they they do have a very high quality attitude to what they do as well and they're, and they're keen on expansion so i can definitely see the little bang brand going further with them to to more locations well, stuff like that and, and we'll talk about the duxton group um in, in time but i was just yeah wondering whether as you went through phil was saying that you did have you know, plans, um, or you, you had spoken. Well, potential. If there ever... Yeah, yeah. I, th I think we're very fortunate that I think from like 2016 was when the girls came on, wasn't it, Phil? Uh, our wives, our wives came yeah, in with a lot yeah. more sort of actual business acumen than us. So I think we're both very, very forward-facing individuals. It's like, mm -hmm. show me what I got to work with. What do I have to do? Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like, and getting it sorted today, maybe this week. And, and not thinking about much else. And um, and our wives, uh, yes, have a little more future-oriented vision, um, I think. And, and they really trained us up in, in having a bit more oversight in terms of business. So, yeah, they kind of helped us develop things like to really think about our identity as a business and to think about our future as a business, to think about what we actually care about and want to aim at because that, that really, really becomes something once you're spending serious dollars every week and, you know, and, and you've got people's um, livelihood rolled up in, in, in your own funny little project. It helps to not waste an awful lot of money just reacting to what's going on this week, but to have some real vision of, of where you're heading. There was a few plans. I mean, we went over to Perth about 18 months ago, I reckon. We did a bit of a recce around there knowing... By that time, like, oh shit, the move to Perth is actually really coming up because mm -hmm. um, it did it did really sneak up. We knew from six years ago. Many, yeah, yeah, many years ago. Yeah, 
So look, there were some great spots around there. I really liked South Perth. I thought there was a lot of opportunity there. There wasn't much around and it's a beautiful place. So I don't know, potentially. But, it, but, it but again, a- we're seeing, we're increasingly seeing brands wanting to do that. And uh, in Melbourne, that was the basis of the equity crowdfund that uh, Three Ravens are doing. They're talking about expanding into uh, other places. And you know, we are seeing that, well, I'm not getting growth necessarily here. So I'm going to grow elsewhere, but then you're actually seeing brands crisscrossing, you know, with with, with their uh, expansion plans. Do you, do you think that's a, um, uh, you know, like a? Had you guys reached a size that you thought that that was viable, or was it something that was going to be a, a challenge as everybody else turns to look at the same? Yeah, I think maybe organically everyone ends up kind of thinking that way because they're just they're seeing the same. Everyone's seeing the same mm. thing. Wholesale, wholesale is a tough market. Um, the big guys, you know, push pretty hard on price, um, and and the amount of you know the sales staff you need and and logistics and all that kind of crap just is really difficult. Versus having a nice little venue, employing the right people there, you know, getting a good chef in or whatever is whatever you need, and making making a a really nice place that people want to go to and making retail dollars on it. Like, I think everyone's in that same position as a way of thinking. I don't know if that can be flooded out. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, obviously there's a there's, there's a cap, but I don't think we're well, anywhere near that. There's plenty of pubs out there that aren't breweries, you know, and, you know, there's lots yeah, and lots, yeah. of, lots and lots of pubs. Australians love to go to pubs. And I think one thing that can't be uh, underestimated uh, that we're also seeing come out of the States, the data there is not only do we see styles coming down the pipe and things like that, but we see broader macro trends like consumption at place of production um, is a huge uh, growth element in the States and it's only growing and growing. And I think that is probably partly a reaction to more and more macro brands uh, getting better and better at simulating craft uh whereas when you go to the place of production you're under absolutely no illusions of what you see is literally what you're getting although we are seeing the 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 big guys increasingly create those small footprint you know touch places um, like your james squire tap houses and that sort of stuff. well not even that like up here we've got your monday um brewery with the tiny mountain up in townsville you've got byron bay has the brand oh yes that's Um, right tiny mountain that's that's a lion thing isn't it yeah yeah Yeah. see even they they even got you yeah i actually know the guy who was running it um up there and it sounds like a great operation actually i've known some people who great beers great brands that's the thing and you can't fault um so even this idea of love your local or you know being local yeah um it it, it's very hard when when it's easy to feign independence or make make your brand look and we're seeing the big retailers doing that um now with their zythos brands and Things like that. Yeah, um, well, I think th- we're talking some fairly different things, though. Like something like Tiny Mountain, I think, is genuinely interesting. And um, yeah. the kind of, uh, I think, something that Phil and I developed over years and years of working a bar together, I think, is we discovered a real love for getting right into the weeds with people over a few beers in conversation. And, <laughs> oh. I thought you were going to say, Ryan, a hatred for no. customers. <laughs> <laughs> no, some customers, but a few, 
you can really get right into it. In, and I think especially within places, yeah, within teams like, uh, you know, little uh, uh, um, cohorts like the craft beer punter, you do hear a lot of uh, fairly shorthand platitudes about things um, uh, that people just like to spout and believe. And I think it can be fun to challenge people a little bit on their shorthand morality over, over certain things. Like it, um, small businesses are perfectly capable of being terrible employers. You know, it is possible. It, um, it doesn't mean just because you're small that you're necessarily better. Um, everyone, uh, and it doesn't mean just because they're big that they're necessarily all bad. Like I've certainly yeah. heard some great things about um, people working in Lion. Uh, they have uh, a lot of capabilities that a small business doesn't have and, and some of the stuff that they do for the people who work there is really quite amazing. Uh, the support. We, we've actually been celebrating them as you know very significant uh, you know employers who are you know driving positive change in the employment practices of the Absolutely. industry because they are so inclusive and, and, and do that so well. And you look at something like Tiny Mountain, um, Look, would Townsville have a, a great little tap room like that or big tap room like that if not for a, a company willing to risk serious dollars on it? Yep. Um, and, you know, it's employing locals there and, um, it's, and it's providing a lot of that experience. I guess the one thing to take issue with, I suppose, which is certainly a thing, is how much of that... Um, Retail spend is now just leaving the country, um, mm. which is a question. Although they do reinvest an awful lot into Australia, it seems. And it's paying a lot of wages on the way. I, you know, it's yeah. just the profits that go overseas. And then again, every time we buy a, a dishwasher um, or a, you know, we, we, we're sending money off, you know, voluntarily sending money off. Over, and and that, I think that's uh, to your point about challenging people who have these glib little one-liners about your profits are going overseas. Yeah. Know, how many people take an overseas holiday yeah. um, because, and, and, and instead of holidaying at home? Yeah, the Facebook, the Facebook headline. Um, yeah, which yeah. I think I'm very, very cautious about because I know when I was sort of in my 20s and early 30s, I was very much one of those facebook headline lefties i proudly <laughs> browbeat people because i'm a goddamn expert because i scrolled past something and now i'm on the moral <laughs> high ground and i feel mortified on the way i used to talk down to people um on the basis of that sort of garbage and it's only i think when well not total garbage but really just half the story and i think it's when people like that find themselves somehow in business you realise how complex the world is where now you're the man, man. You're the prick, yep. uh, you know, <laughs> employing people like a douchebag, you know, and yeah. you're necessarily the man to some extent. So you realise it's far more complex and, and the system actually is very, very complex and there's good and bad. It's nuance is, is the way it's I talk nuance, about it. the enemy of righteous indignation. <laughs> Now, just just go. One one of the things that um, I, I was really struck by Ryan when we talked at the time of the sale, and you did talk about how you'd the, the the two of you in talking about how the business is valued and what you do and things, you found it very hard to assign a value that saw one person taking over everything because how do you value the other person's sweat equity and things and it yeah. to me i was reading between the lines that this the eventual sale to the duxton group meant that you both walked away with the same as well um as opposed to one person 
getting the business that you'd both sweated for and the other having to pay over some money to, to do that. Is that what, what you were getting to? Yes, we decided on a 100% sale, 50-50 mm. down the middle because um, it just, yeah, it wouldn't be possible. You, you just can't find, well, maybe you can, Matt, but um, you, you're the man with all the data on these things, but we just couldn't find a really reliable multiplier and, and a basis to, to, to put these things on because there are, there are such wildly divergent valuations of breweries out there. Mm. Um, yeah, and it just felt right too that um, this is a journey we started together and we should end the, this chapter together and then um, continue on independently interacting with it as suits best both of us, you know. Now, I know, you know, I've got no data. Again, like the only data that I see is when sale prices become public, actual sale prices as opposed to the self-valuations that seem to take place in equity creation. (laughs) I I wish I could have captured that base. 40 40 times revenue. Wicked. Yeah, done. (laughs) But then you see Stomping Ground, for example, and, you know, Stomping Ground, which was a largely retail business, I believe, you know, Mm. from the volumes, they had a couple of large... And, you know, when you look at the business pages, you can buy a nightclub that's, you know, turning over, you know, a million dollars a year, but it's going for $200,000 a year. And yet at the moment you see breweries that are significantly retail, which is basically selling beer, um, but going for multiples of revenue as opposed to fractions of revenue. And that's where it it can be very, very hard to to, to work out. I find the revenue multiplier a, a very odd thing anyway. Surely it should be a, surely it should be a profit multiplier. You know, you, you have your you have your asset value as one thing. Like literally, if you just shut the door and sold everything, what's that worth? But then the business portion, that sort of intangible thing, surely yeah. that's a factor of profit. Yeah. Surely, I mean, you can make tons of revenue by losing money. Yes. You know what I mean? The yeah. best way to make a million bucks is spend two million bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But any sophisticated buyer, anyone that's serious about purchasing a business is going to look at profitability. It's not and, and potential for growth and, and, you know, what's what's the incline or decline going on with the business. So these these numbers, that particularly in the crowdsourcing stuff that you've, we've been seeing recently this year, it's just it's laughable numbers um, kind of thing. It's just... I'm hesitant to comment because I'm good friends. That's fine. If you're not, if you're investing, as if you're investing a hundred bucks, who cares? Kind of thing. I would invest a hundred bucks just to get their books and have a look at their books. You know, so uh, it's 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 when you're talking a full scale sale of the business, these numbers become completely pointless. And we had very good accountants and lawyers working for us with this sale. And they had a lot more data than mm. I've ever seen before and were able to come up with yeah. a realistic number, which, funnily enough, the purchaser also came up with a very similar yes, number. And we actually so, had a couple of different people value it and, and it's nice to have that triangulation of several independent sources arrive at something similar. Yeah, people can wave a lot of numbers around out there, but it's, it doesn't mean anything unless someone's actually willing to spend it. Did you have any other investors in the business? When, when you sold? Yeah, a few, but, a, few, a few friends so, of the company, but it was only to the tune of about 12%. Yeah. But did, did did any of them, when you sort of said, right, 
here is our number. This is how we've come up with it. Did any of them say, hey, mate, you're shortchanging us. Look at the 50 million that this one's valued at. Um, I think there was a lot of that thought going on that we've got some hint that some might have thought that. Um, and look, those numbers that you see from the big guys and stuff like that, amazing. Like, amazing numbers. If you can get that money and those multipliers, good on you. But we're, we're realistic. We're selling from one private company to another private company. Yeah. And uh, it was realistic numbers, not... Yeah, I think like so many things in business over the years, you start recognising early when you're going to have to have an awkward conversation and you just just get into it. You don't avoid it. Yeah, and it just means just having a proper conversation and correcting someone's um, probably not too detailed assumptions about what this really means. Like it is a fact that if you're doing four or five million litres plus and a giant multinational is fighting with another giant multinational over you, then yes, you will get a bigger multiplier because you're a genuine threat and you've got real market share that they're purchasing. So there's all that sort of intangible stuff that they're buying. But yeah, we're nowhere near that scale. So it was just, you know, explaining things like that to people like that's just, that's a different kind of business. That would, and that would take millions and millions worth of extra investment in us to potentially get there in that very risky space. And that's just not something we're really we're willing still to go. There's still no guarantees of a sale. That's, that's the other thing is that these big boys they don't buy everyone out there doing 2 million litres, 3 million litres. They only buy what they want to buy. So it's a risky hedge to go down the path of like, oh, if we do 3 million litres, we're going to get a 25 times multiplier on, you know, EBITDA or yeah. something like that. And, so it's just, you know, yeah. I don't know, maybe we're just both Gen X and just by our very nature a bit contrarian. But it's just you throw think, me in that book. <laughs> it's shitty. To, you know, it's it's just shitty to hear so many people have the same damn conversation over and over again about get it to this many liters and then pff, shoot it off like that. It's not, there's more than one way to go. Like you know, it, it's yeah. I quite like the fact that we went in a different direction. Yeah, and I want to also just add add one little thing to that. We never started the business for sale it was never the it was because we would have done it completely differently if that was the case we started the business to make a profitable business that was going to pay ourselves an income that we wanted have a good time doing it have a great relationship with our employees and stuff like that that's what we want to do it was nothing about the sale and i think if we went into the other approach we went down the same path but with the with the idea of it being a saleable business I don't think we would have ever sold anyway. So it would just would have been a piece of shit. <laughs> we would have done our research and given up before we started. Uh, I'm just going to yeah. circle back. Yeah, because yeah. well, you, you, you talk about um, it was 110% a hobby. Phil, I think, and uh, I think Ryan said that, you know, you, you were trying to avoid doing anything that was vaguely grown up. Um, was, was, yeah. And yet the way you exited um, was an incredibly grown-up way of doing it. You went to, you know, the, the adults in the room, which was the, uh, you know, you went to KPMG that I think, uh, you know, has been engaged by Coopers, the Australia's third largest brewery, to do their valuations when they do, you know, little, little, little bang 
is going to you know seek out these very serious corporate heavy hitters to help you with the sale. Talk me about that. Uh, you know, talk to me because that was a very grown up thing for for people who wanted to avoid yeah. that. We did approach a few places for sale, uh, for like these these groups to to uh, facilitate the sale. I think we're very lucky that we landed on KPMG in the end. Well, I mean, it was actually our friend. Uh, it was our friend, the lawyer, who because we'd spoken to K, KPMG a couple of years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, just yeah. just about it was just yeah, it just so happened they like drinking at our place and they wanted to have a chat. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah, Simon was a legend. He was a regular yeah. customer of ours. But I think we yeah. spoke to other people Absolutely. and then we spoke to our lawyer, who's a lovely bloke, lovely local guy who's really helped us uh, a Feel lot. free to give him a plug. There's a lot of uh, people in similar uh, yeah, positions. Yeah, Craig and Moses Legal, Legal in yeah. Adelaide. Yeah. yeah. He, um, I think he wins awards every year and absolutely not like every other lawyer that I've ever met where I just want to throw him in the bin. But um, actually a genuinely nice guy that you can pick up the phone and have a chat to and get answers without being charged by the you know half minute. Yeah, very, not in a, very, very good at plain English and, and really uh, yep. telling people who feel a little lost in the woods uh, at the big end of town uh, uh, what what's really important. Yeah, genuine, genuinely good human. And he actually advised us to go, after hearing who we had spoken to, so far, advised us to go back to KPMG uh, and say maybe have another chat with him. I think we were like, "Oh man, that's going to be really expensive." And he was like, "You know, actually have a chat. That's that's not necessarily set in stone. That's always a negotiation point." And he knew some people there, and and, and I think knew that they actually really really liked us and and would probably, you know, because we're definitely smaller than they usually deal with. But that it might mm. be a, considered a, a fun project for them, you know? Yeah. Oh, all of these, all of these people take take their um, chunk of money out, mm. and it is expensive to do. But uh, every time, every couple of weeks, going through this process, I just, you know, thanked our lucky stars that we did go with KPMG because they were so capable and so good to deal with. I yeah, I just couldn't imagine doing it with anyone else because it was nine months, I think, in total to run the yep. process. I've serious doubts we would have made it. Highly stressful. Yeah, very stressful. Yeah, absolutely yeah. stressful. In in fact, I would have to say if I had to do this again, if I'd known what what was involved, I wouldn't have done it. I still wouldn't do it. So yeah. How so? What what what, sort of, what what do you mean? What was involved in it? It's the negotiation side of things, and when you're dealing with lawyers who are out there purely to get 100% for their client. I know that seems So this off. is the other side, not your lawyers, clearly. When you're, yeah. So when you're approaching it from a very, so very level position where everyone yeah. wins and they're just going like, F- you guys, we're just going to screw you to the, screw the, to your nth degree. And this happens week after week after week yeah. after week um, where you're compromising on stuff. Uh, to have, yeah, it was it was incredibly stressful. And especially when it's something so, that you know you only get one chance at and you've spent yeah. a very large chunk of your life and blood, sweat and tears and missed out on serious hours with your kids and with your family over and all that sort of stuff. And just, you know, you're tired, you feel out of your depth um, and, and stressed and you're making decisions every single day that if you mess it up, you don't get another shot at it. 
Um, and there are very smart people who might be trying to get away with murder in, in the mix um, because that's their job. Like when you've got basically, I mean, look at it this way. Um, I honestly think there's a gig for someone out there like a, um, a an acquisition counsellor or something, someone that speaks human in the middle who understands that people have feelings and 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 they, <laughs> they can be and they can be broken by stress and this sort of stuff um, because it really starts principals speak to each other like we'll have a chat with these guys or at least get the indication that they're interested and then we'll probably have because of Adelaide we'll probably have a chat on the side and go shit this could be really on this sounds great and then everyone goes right this is great let's do a deal and so we now go wide apart and we speak to our accountant who speaks to our lawyer who speaks to their lawyer who speaks to their accountant who speaks to them who maybe speaks to their boss and then you spend nine months dealing like that. And there are several levels. Let's just call them advocates on both sides, whose job it is to get the best possible just for their side. And so yeah. you are then intricately itemizing day by day who has liability for what and all the possible things that can go wrong throughout all of time from here on in and who will pay for those things and putting dollar figures on all this stuff. Like, yeah, it's exhausting and terrifying all day while you're trying to run a business on the side. Uh, yeah, it was not a not a fun exercise. Would not recommend. Would, would not recommend. <laughs> One yeah. star would not recommend. Um, yeah. So, Phil, Duxton Hotels Group. Yeah. Did you have a relationship before then or how did, how did they come up as a potential buyer? KPMG, basically, because we didn't do a... A public announcement for sale, so we did it, you know, quietly, quietly, um, and and KPMG basically approached a set group that I, I don't know the list might have been thirty businesses on there of potentially you know worthwhile approaching. Um, obviously, a lot of them just say no straight off the bat, that's sort of fine and stuff like that. But when we actually looked at the list and went through the list. The ones that made the most sense were the pub groups. And there was only a couple on there, I think, at the time. And Duxton was one that stood out because we knew it was South Australian. We already, we already were selling beer to some of their pubs. Um, and and it, just, it, it, it actually just made sense. When you looked at it, it was the most logical conclusion of this is going to work really well for them, including a brewery in their group who they can produce beer for and sell to, you yeah. know, at cost to all their they things. keep the whatever $300,000 excise. Um, oh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. that's so yeah, that's being, being a brewery, they, they do, yeah. yeah. I think that was always an attitude of ours when talking to potential shareholders, even back in the day, was that it would be nice, you know, especially when we we're talking about larger shareholders, that we'd particularly go for people who were from um, who don't have exactly the same skill set as us and have something to offer in terms of at least uh, industry know-how or, or some connections that we wouldn't have. And this, these guys, they're from a, you know, an, an industry that's right next door to beer. Like it's a fundamental part of the beer economy and they know it very mm. well. Um, so that made a lot of sense. And I think, frankly, I've, I've been watching them for some time too. They, they, some of our best customers were in the group and, um, they particularly, the Duxton pub group particularly, at least on reputation, seem very progressive to me. And um, as a pub group that is actively, aggressively out there acquiring, um, 
knowing especially Brett Matthews and Marty Palmer as very, very smart publicans in South Australia and seeing some of the work they'd done at tired old pubs like the Crafers and the Uradler and even the Highway and the Stirling uh, further back, they, the way they'd turned them around and not just cookie-cutted them, they'd really made them blossom where they are for the, the locals there. And, and uh, they've done likewise with the Cremorne. Um, yeah, really turned around a struggling old thing. The Saracens as well, yeah, in the city. Mm. Yeah, so that was nice to, to think that they're a great big company, uh, but that they have, uh, I guess, a bespoke mentality rather than a, a top-down format. Yeah. And that's, that really appealed to us because they clearly, from our talks, they understood the value of our uniqueness, you know, and, mm. and our independence. And from very early on, you know, that wording was in place that we ended up in the press release that it would be uh, defended, you know, or was it ferociously defended, aggressively defended or something, yeah. which was nice. And I can see your attraction to selling to them, but what was their attraction in buying you, I guess? Because with their chain of hotels, they could have just got a consultant in, built a brewery, smashed out, you know, high quality beer um, that they sell themselves under whatever brand they created. What was the attraction of Little Bang to them? I think, fortunately for us, they've had a bad experience in a brewery before and they understood the value of a local actual local established brand yeah i wouldn't say 100 percent bad experience they might say there was some good parts to it i think there's a lot of learning in it they were involved in a an american brand that they were bringing in right and that not necessarily the right time i thought yeah um when i was just getting out of imports um yeah they were sort of getting in the brand called slow brew which did some great beers but just yeah didn't i don't think landed as well as they'd hoped yeah also, like, our business was established. You know, all of the work that goes into a branding, getting the following and stuff like that, it's already, it's already there, ready to go, I guess, as well. Plus, we're already a profitable business, so they weren't really going to, at any point, lose yeah. on it. Yes, they could have set their own brewery up and, and potentially would have done quite well, but it would have just taken a bit longer to do. Maybe it's, maybe they see it as an They also option. look at our tap room in Stepney, I think, and saw it was a damn good hospitality business. So that's what they really understand is is, is pubs. And they could just look at those numbers and it's a no-brainer for them because our tap room does extremely well. And um, I think it was actually getting to know them a bit better. There's a lot. There's a, I know that we've got the... You've got Brett and Marty and Ed as the sort of patrons of the whole thing. Um, you know, these guys with a lot of experience and, and uh, a lot of time in the industry, but there's a lot of young people in the group and a lot of serious enthusiasm and a progressive mindset there. Anyway, I think it was a lot of the youngsters really pushed like, shit, yeah, little bang, that's wicked. I think, there, okay. I think there was just a lot of people <laughs> in the business, in the Duxton group, who thought it was really exciting, probably because they like coming to our place. Just before I let you go, and again, I, <laughs> that was where I was going to leave it, but I, I'm fascinated. One of my observations about the craft industry, particularly when it's come up the way that you guys did from outside of the industry is brewing enthusiasts. I'm very interested to hear you talk about the strength of your hospitality venue because that's often 
from my experience, the weakness for people that have come at it, you know, they, they, they see themselves as we just need to make good beer. We'll put a couple of beer nerds behind a, behind a bench and they can throw some frothies out. But it is a hospitality business at the end of the day. It's just in the same as a restaurant is in a kitchen, a craft brewery isn't a manufacturing plant. It is a hospitality venue. Where did you guys learn hospitality to make it such a... Uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll say for the record, Phil is laughing. <laughs> yeah, learn. Learn is an inverted commas. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're both hospitable people. I guess we we come we we hopefully we come across. We spent plenty well. of time in bars. People seem to like to. So yeah, doesn't make you so an we, expert. We ran the bar for for a, for a few years, and then we moved, and and you know we started employing people. And the great thing is that we we attracted. When we put it out there that we needed staff, we attracted excellent staff, excellent, excellent staff that I count as some of my best friends who I love like a family. And they just, they just brought with them those extra skills that they could pump into the business. And the, the hospitality side just, just blossomed because the, the staff were really good. So it all kind of, it worked itself out in the sense that we attracted the right people and then they applied the right ethos to the business to grow the hospitality. I think that helped us to realise and... what we'd been doing all along without really understanding it too, I think. It, it helped us to draw a bead on what our brand really meant and that we had this sort of yeah nerdy aspect and a very tangential kind of view and, and, and a desire to to always sort of go sideways in our branding and in our ideas, you know, instead of just down the line, like, like most others were. And uh, I think these guys helped us realize that we actually had a really broad appeal. Um, we weren't like maybe for Phil and I in the old place, it was mainly a place for, for beer nerds and people who don't mind a noisy, smelly, hot or freezing environment. To, to, to stand up and shiver and have a couple of pints of weird stout in or something like that. But as it grew, we really understood that more than some other brands, we actually had this really broad appeal to, to a lot of people, like really strong female uh, following and, and people of all ages coming in and then leaning into that within our local community, really the, the breadth of people coming to our place fed back what the little bang brand really meant to us and I feel I feel like especially once we came to Henry Street we we absorbed it from them more than us setting the agenda for what it is anymore and we really felt like we were just trying to do our best to service it in the way it had blossomed out rather than you know what I mean rather than a top-down thinking of, of our own very specific weird idea like in the beginning and and it's yeah, and it's the it's the hospo professionals who really helped us achieve that. Like I just stay the hell out of their way. Like yeah. 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 I show up when they want me to talk some bullshit about something and I stay the hell out of the way. I may I may be duck behind the bar to grab myself a beer sometimes. Just so I'm not in the <laughs> you know. Well just yeah. given again, given given the, the time I've kept you just, What's next for you both? Uh, Phil, you're consulting to the business. Is there rabbit ears around consulting or you're still actively involved in the business? Um, not, 
Not actively so much anymore. Like, I'm sure I'll get the occasional email or phone call about something going on <laughs> somewhere. Um, but I'm kind of in a bit of a crossroads at the moment. I don't want to go back to being an employee and being a fridgey or anything like that. I'm not really interested in doing that. So I'm looking at other business adventures to, to take on. Um, but no, no rush at the moment. So... I mean, I've got a nice property in Western Australia in the Perth Hills and looking out there and going, oh, do I plant yuzu trees or do I plant pistachio trees? You know, that type of thing. Is, is this would be an excellent place to, uh, to plug your boutique citrus that the brewing industry can't get enough of. <laughs> if I go down the Yuzu path, yeah, but I'm still undecided no, about well, the moment, If you're looking so, for investments yeah. on a little publishing company that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Needing some coin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's a... But, you know, the beer industry, it's it's what a, it's a really strange thing and, and it's something that I'm coming to grips with is that I've been involved in it for 10 years now and to... Step away 100%, I think it's going to be difficult. And I think it's also, for me, it would be a shame losing, not being able to apply that knowledge that I had still to the industry. Um, where that ends up, I'm not sure at this point. So. Well, as I've said to you a thousand times, you're in Perth, for God's sake. You can walk into any one of 30 local breweries or something around there, and I... I doubt you'd spend more than five minutes in each place before you could tell them something extremely valuable and then probably show them how to do it. Consulting. <laughs> yeah. we, <laughs> so, and how about you, Ryan? You're still involved in the business? Yeah, yeah. I'm um, yeah, still basically in the same role as I was, but we're kind of, yeah, integrating with a larger entity so they've got accounts over here and hr over there and finance team and all these people that you now need to run things by so that's kind of interesting um i think well yeah i've deliberately not asked you about because th th these things take time to you know integrate so we'll probably we're still we're still a hot mess yeah absolutely yeah. um but but really trying to i think the last couple of weeks we've just started to feel like we're not just frantically trying to put the to-do list together of how we get it built. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's it's going to be good. We've got a couple of major hires, of course, to to fill some really big shoes around here from some some of our heads that are now out, who are in this room, uh, and and in that house. Um, yeah, and my wife Carrie is going to be leaving the business pretty soon as well. So we've got like a marketing manager coming on, things like that talking to you know yeah all the different pubs in the group and pubs outside the group about you know what it all means and all this stuff and yeah it's um it's no end of things to do i actually haven't really stopped and, and i find on the weekend i i try not to draw a, a long view of it i just do my best to not think about it at all and then when i'm at work i'm so busy with what's right in front of me right now i haven't really had time to draw a long view on it except every now and then a couple of times a week i'll just go like i haven't spoken to phil in a couple of days that's a bit yeah it's the weirdest part of it actually is not well, because right i pockets. used to have this yeah. yeah and just conversations constantly about not necessarily about the brewing industry just mundane mm -hmm. shit and you know bits and pieces of stuff that we've picked up over the on the weekend or whatever and 
Yeah, it's, that's that's been we, real we still have so, a very yeah. healthy um, exchange of perverse articles on Reddit, <laughs> <laughs> which, let's face it, was really the best fun part of the relationship for the most part, <laughs> <laughs> messing with each other's goddamn money. Everything all the time. not the business. Yeah. Yeah, everything. That's right. Oh, well, you, yeah. you, you're both on camera saying, give each other a virtual uh, man hug, you know, that we're High five yeah. around Matt's head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Get the lining up. Right well, there. Phil Kemp Slap. and Ryan Davidson, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for you know, speaking so um, openly about, you know, such a, a fascinating journey that you've been on with Little Bang. So uh, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Thank you, Matt. Thank, thank you for being that. so interested and um, yeah. honestly for having such uh, insight on the business. I've learned an awful lot from you and I hope this might help someone in a similar circumstance add to the pool of amazing Bruce News knowledge. Well, it's yeah. none of which is mine. It's all, uh, we've become a, a receptacle, a recipient of it as opposed to a creator of it. But uh, thank you. What um, a receptacle. Yeah, and, and, and congratulations <laughs> to you both. And uh, I'll follow up, you know, yeah, we might follow up in 12 months and see how, we're, how everything's panned out. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. And thank you to Phil and Ryan for being so open and entertaining in the way that they talked about the business. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Radio Brews News has a Facebook group. If you'd like to join it, you can search for Radio Brews News in Facebook and use the password Soapbox. There you can share what you find interesting in the news and also be part of one of the best discussions on the internet about beer. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts, and there's links to all of those in the show notes. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back later this week with our discussion of all things beer news in Brews News Week. 